Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's www.outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, get advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK World Radio Japan, Russia's Sputnik Radio, Radio Havana Cuba, and Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. The Chinese Foreign Ministry reacted strongly against the Indo-Pacific strategy unveiled by the U.S. last week. Then updates on COVID in Japan and Southeast Asia. A brief update on the tension over Ukraine where Russian-backed armed groups in the eastern parts of the country reported being attacked by Ukrainian troops and said they did not fire back. NHK Japan China's foreign ministry has strongly reacted against the Indo-Pacific strategy unveiled by the United States last week. The Biden administration indicated in a strategy document last Friday that the U.S. will strengthen cooperation with allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific region to counter China's growing influence. On Monday, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Wang Wenbin addressed the matter at a news conference in Beijing. The U.S. insists that the strategy is aimed at beefing up regional security. However, it would actually destroy peace and stability in the region. He added that the strategy pledges to promote regional prosperity, but that it would stir up antagonism among countries in the region. Wang went on to say that the strategy is an attempt to revive the Cold War mentality and politics dominated by a specific group. Let's have a look at the coronavirus developments in Japan. Nationwide, more than 91,000 new cases were confirmed on Wednesday. But in the seven-day period through Tuesday, the number of weekly infections dropped for the first time in two and a half months. Data presented at a meeting of health ministry experts show that new infections fell by about 10% from the previous week. That's the first decline since December. But deaths are on the rise. There were 230 reported across the country on Wednesday. That's the second day in a row the toll exceeded 200. The quasi-emergency is scheduled to end in 21 prefectures on Sunday, yet more than half of them, including Osaka, have requested an extension. On the other hand, Okinawa, Yamaguchi and Yamagata are asking that it be lifted as scheduled as new cases in those prefectures decline. In a similar vein, the government is arranging to begin gradually easing an entry ban and other restrictions in March. Foreign visitors, excluding tourists, will be allowed in under certain conditions. The daily entry limit will be raised from 3,500 to 5,000. Also, the seven-day quarantine period may be shortened for those who test negative on the third day after arrival. 
Southeast Asia is seeing a, seeing a spike in new coronavirus cases fueled by the Omicron variant. Indonesia confirmed more than 57,000 new cases on Tuesday, the most ever. The daily count had been below 1,000 since last October but surged last month as Omicron spread. The government has tightened restrictions in Jakarta and elsewhere. It's encouraging remote work and limiting the number of customers at restaurants. Thailand recorded over 16,000 new cases on Wednesday. The country has seen over 10,000 cases a day over the past week. Singapore reported a record of more than 19,000 new cases on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, neighboring Malaysia topped 27,000 for the first time ever. Authorities in Vietnam have also seen cases rise to a record, more than 30,000. Still, they're set to lift nearly all the travel restrictions for visitors put in place to control the spread. We start this hour with the tension over Ukraine. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says Russia will send a response on Thursday to security proposals from the United States and NATO and make it public. Lavrov announced this earlier on Thursday. Russia wants NATO to promise not to expand further eastward. The U.S. and other NATO member states have been rejecting that demand. Meanwhile, Russian-backed armed groups that control parts of eastern Ukraine said Ukrainian government troops had fired at least 160 shells at their territory. Ukraine has denied that accusation. The military told Reuters that its positions were fired on with prohibited weapons, but did not fire back. Russia says some of its forces are pulling back from border areas. Western governments say they have not confirmed any major withdrawal. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 7245 and 9865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, Sputnik Radio. On his program called Going Underground, Afshin Ratansi spoke with Robert Skidelsky, member of the House of Lords, economic historian and professor emeritus at the University of Warwick. He discusses the UK's threats to sanction Russia over a potential invasion of Ukraine, the media's role in creating alarm and hysteria, NATO's refusal to recognize Russian security interest, the irony of the West driving Russia into the hands of China, and that Russia and Ukraine themselves need to define their relationship. Sputnik Radio. As both Ukrainian and Russian presidents try to ease fears of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, NATO nation leaders embroiled in domestic political battles at home heighten fears of a war with Moscow. Joining me now from here in London to discuss the way out of this crisis is the biographer of John Maynard Keynes, Lord Skidelsky, Emeritus Professor of Political Economy at Warwick University. So the Joe Biden administration kind of flip-flopped, said the invasion was imminent, now it's any day. Boris Johnson's Foreign Secretary Liz Truss saying Russia denials about invading Ukraine are false, or at least Lavrov has to prove it. Um, your, your take on this week's events, I suppose I'd better ask first. Well, you know, they're stoking up the tension, aren't they? I mean, I think the West is at the moment, and particularly Britain, 
For example, we're, we're promised um, legislation which will produce uh, heavy sanctions within 24 hours if there's one soldier that crosses, Russian soldier crosses the Ukrainian frontier. I mean, that's a kind of uh, ratcheting up tension because um, Russia has always denied that it has any intention of invading the Ukraine. And this is almost goading it. In a way, it's, it's Britain's attempt to take a lead in an issue which it's not really concerned with, because it's not part of the Normandy process, it's not part of Minsk, it's really trying to hold NATO together or make NATO into a, the main point. Whereas, in fact, this is a Ukraine-Russian issue, primarily. I mean, why do you think they aren't heeding the words of President Zelensky, uh, who is alarmed by uh, the uh, de facto evacuation of diplomatic personnel from Kiev and, um, I suppose, the impact on ordinary Ukrainians economically by all this panic? Yeah. Well, you know, looking at it from Britain's point of view, they are out of the main negotiations. They're not part of... I mean, the, the real diplomatic uh, settlements have to be primarily between Ukraine and Russia and America and Russia. France and Germany will play an important diplomatic role. Britain is not part of that, but it wants to get in on the action in a way. It wants to play the part of the champion of NATO against uh, Russian aggressive designs. And so that's the way it gets into the action. But I think it's highly counterproductive. I wish the British government would say very, very little and leave the negotiations to the parties mainly concerned, which are Russia, Ukraine, Germany, very important, and the United States. Uh, as for Joe Biden, he has said, with Olaf Scholz, I think, uh, standing next to him, that uh, Nord Stream 2 has to be stopped, will be stopped, Germany more circumspect. Um, surely that would just mean that the Russian energy resources would go through the existing pipeline in Ukraine rather than Nord Stream. It's still Russian energy. Yeah. I don't know how he thinks that the United States will stop it if Germany wants it to go forward. I mean, I don't know what that means. We will stop it. We can stop it. There may be some legal grounds for intervention, but I don't see how else the United States can stop it. I mean, Biden's position is quite ambiguous. I mean, he's got a much more warlike Congress behind him than he himself feels. The outcome, assuming it's not going to be terrible casualties and, and uh, World War III de facto, has been good for arms companies, obviously, who are benefiting from all this materiel. And the big outcome, the drawing together of Moscow and Beijing. Uh, do you not think that NATO understands that? Or is, does NATO want Russia and China to have a closer relationship? Because clearly that's happening. You're asking for people to be rational. That, of course, is a, a very optimistic view of the way uh, international affairs are conducted. There are rational elements. And, of course, it's, it's hopeless to drive Russia into the hands of China. I mean, that's a real triumph, ironically, isn't it, of, of Western diplomacy. I mean, it's got to be Ukraine and Russia that decide their, their relationship together. And that also means that um, the Kremlin has to be cautious. 
I mean, it's very easy to be goaded into action um, when you don't want action, really, when it's not in your best interest. So everyone has to be cool and they have to think it through. But the main point, surely, is the is Ukraine-Russian relationship. That seems to me absolutely central. I don't know whether that's being discussed much in, in Russia, but that's the key to it. Lavrov said that the uh, kind of talk being used reminds him of the Goebbels textbook on propaganda when it comes to security agreements in, in Europe. Lavrov also said that uh, the evacuations of diplomatic staff could mean a false flag, I suppose echoing the American accusations of a Russian false flag, that could kick off conflict. He yeah, well, both sides really are accusing the other of exploiting domestic difficulties. And there's an element of truth in that. I mean, when uh, David Clark, I think you quoted, says it's uh, Johnson's difficulties have weakened our ability. What does our mean? Oh, you are. I mean, Britain hasn't got any, any huge role. There he's talking on behalf of NATO. At the same time, um, it's also clear that President Putin has political problems. I mean, the the level of his uh, the level of the opposition has been rising. So politicians' motives are political, as well as motives of principle and higher things. And I think you've got to take both of those into account. In, you know, they've got to be statesmanlike both sides now, very statesmanlike, because otherwise things could escalate out of control without anyone intending it. What do you think the media's role has been in uh, all of this uh, at the moment uh, as regards echoing? Yeah, in Britain it's been disastrous. You know, there is a Cold War lobby in Britain, a very strong one. It's got support in the United States. I don't think the United States is actually the leader of the Cold War lobby, though Congress may be. And of course, Ukrainian lobby in, in Washington, there, there is one there as well. The media haven't played a very, very good role. I found it quite hard to get stuff in the British press which takes Russian security concerns seriously. There's a Cold War atmosphere, but it could run out of control if it was allowed to. And that's why it's very important that the diplomats and statesmen must start talking with each other. And again, I emphasize the point, Ukrainians must start talking to Russia. But I mean, what do you think about the absolute uh, support that the British Labour Party is giving for Boris Johnson's position? I think it's an example of the, of, of the official attitude. It is one that they feel that in this crisis, there should be a, a national solidarity behind this policy of um, threatening Russia with sanctions. It's a mad conversation. Russia is not threatening Britain. It's not a security threat to Britain. Therefore, why are they uh, all uniting as though it were? So I, I think the Labour Party is actually um, misconstruing the function of a good opposition at this time, which is to query the premises of the government's policy. And it's left to a few of us to do that, um, not many. And difficult if you're in parliament, because um, then um, people might say, oh, you're just pro-Russian. Full stop. Lord Skidelsky, thank you. 
That excerpted interview is by Afshin Ratansi from his program called Going Underground on Sputnik Radio, the current name for the voice of Russia, available online at rt.com and on YouTube. Search for Going Underground and you could listen to the entire 15-minute interview with Lord Skidelsky. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. In Mexico, members of the media took to the streets to protest the five murders of Mexican journalists in the first six weeks of 2022. Deforestation in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil rose to the highest level ever in the month of January. The Central Bank of Afghanistan condemned Joe Biden's executive order which seeks to seize and split $7 billion in U.S.-held Afghan assets. The Lebanese army has called on the United Nations to end the Israeli army's repeated violations of airspace and waters to carry out attacks on Syria. Radio Havana, Cuba. In Mexico, members of the media took to the streets across the country for a second round of massive protests in response to ongoing murders of Mexican journalists. Five journalists have been assassinated in the first six weeks of 2022. Jose Luis Gamboa, Margarito Martinez Esquivel, Iber Lopez Vasquez, Lourdes Baldonuro Lopez and Roberto Toledo Barrera. Eber Lopez is the latest victim killed in the southern state of Oaxa last week. A virgin was held at their memory in Mexico City. Speaking at the ceremony, Shame Guerrero, one of the organists, told media sources, quote, We journalists would like to see the federal and state governments show solidarity with the press, but instead we see indifference and in some cases direct attacks. In Brazil, deforestation in the Amazon rainforest last month rose to the highest level ever recorded for the month of January. New government data shows Brazil's Amazon lost 166 square miles of rainforest, an area seven times the size of Manhattan. Environmentalists say the deforestation is accelerating as far-right President Jair Bolsonaro faces an uphill battle for re-election in October. Britano Silveira Soares Filho, an environmental activist, told reporters, quote, under the current government, the dismantling of Brazil's environmental protection, environmental laws and environmental enforcement continues as command and control is being promoted. So this is a race. This is a race to deforest, especially the Amazon. Earlier, Hamilton Maurao, the vice president of Brazil, acknowledged as accurate the deforestation figures issued by the Institute for Space Research that indicated a record deforestation alert in the Amazon for the month of January. Right-wing President Bolsonaro has been criticized by environmental activists since 2019 due to the growth of deforestation in the Amazon. During the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP26, the government announced that it had a goal of zero illegal deforestation by 2028. In news from Afghanistan, the nation's central bank has condemned U.S. President Joe Biden's executive order of last week, which seeks to seize and split $7 billion in U.S.-held Afghan assets between the families of 9-11 victims and so-called humanitarian assistance for Afghanistan. The Afghan central bank said the move is an injustice to the people of Afghanistan. Aid groups have also blasted the news as millions in Afghanistan face extreme poverty, hunger and displacement. The Lebanese army has called on the United Nations to act urgently to end the Israeli regime's repeated violation of that Arab country's sovereignty and airspace to carry out airstrikes in neighboring Syria.
During a meeting at the United Nations headquarters in Ras Nakura in southern Lebanon, between Major General Stefano Del Col, head of the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon, or UNIFIL, and a Lebanese army delegation headed by Brigadier General Hasib Abdo, the Lebanese side asked the world body to pressure Israel to stop its hostile practices, especially the use of Lebanon's airspace to bomb Syrian lands and its continued violations of Lebanese sovereignty by land and sea. Israeli fighter jets and gunboats have violated the Lebanese airspace and territorial waters in flagrant violation of a United Nations Security Council resolution. The Lebanese army delegation warned of dangerous consequences if Israeli warplanes continue to penetrate its airspace. The Lebanon's government, Hezbollah and the UNIFIL have repeatedly condemned Israel's overflights, saying they are in clear violation of United Nations Security Council Resolution 1701. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though the podcasts are not updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6060 or 6100. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162. Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet. Many thanks for all past donations. We will conclude with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Next month, most COVID restrictions in Germany will be lifted, though face masks will remain required. Meanwhile, Hong Kong is experiencing its worst COVID outbreak. A month's worth of rain fell in three hours near Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, leading to at least 100 deaths. Despite net zero pledges, major European banks are funding $55 billion this year for projects to expand oil and gas production. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Well, next month, most COVID-19 restrictions here in Germany will be lifted. Today, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Germany's 16 state leaders agreed to a gradual step-by-step plan to lift most pandemic restrictions. Now, it comes amid falling coronavirus infections and a rise in vaccinations with almost three-quarters of the population now having had at least two shots. Germany will follow a three-step plan to gradually remove what the Chancellor calls a large part of the current restrictions by March 20th. He added Germans will have to keep wearing face masks and take precautions because, as he said and duly noted, the pandemic is not over. Start in Hong Kong, where hospitals are struggling to cope with the city's worst outbreak of COVID-19 infections. Chinese President Xi Jinping has ordered the territory to get the situation under control. Local leader Carrie Lam has appealed to residents to stick to her government's strict zero-COVID measures. 
Heavy rains, flash floods and landslides have killed at least 100 people in Brazil. Rescue teams are searching for survivors but fear the death toll could rise. One of the worst affected areas in the city of Petropolis in the hills above Rio de Janeiro. Nearly a month's worth of rain fell on the city in just three hours. Despite net zero pledges, major European banks are funding projects to expand oil and gas production. That's according to a report by non-profit Share Action. 25 of the region's biggest lenders, including Barclays, HSBC and Deutsche Bank, provided $55 billion to energy companies last year. And while that amount is nearly half what European banks financed in 2020, it is more than double the figure for 2018. The International Energy Agency has warned that net zero carbon emissions needs to be achieved by 2050 to keep alive hopes of limiting global warming to below 1.5 degrees. Well, let's discuss this further with Ilan Kelman from the Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction at University College London. Thanks for joining us on DW Business. Uh, we're not actually in a, a post-oil and gas world yet, are we? We still need both to meet the world's energy needs. So why is it a problem that banks are investing in oil and gas projects? Well, part of the reason that we're not in a post-oil and gas world is because the banks are investing in the projects. No one's asking for a transition overnight, but we now have plenty, we have enough to be able to avoid new investment. And that's what this report is about, trying to avoid new investment, particularly when these banks have committed to not doing this. But we are seeing investment dropping. I mean, HSBC invested half as much in 2021 as they did in 2020, and it seems to be dropping across the board. If we're not expecting it overnight, what's the problem? Yes, and this is very encouraging. It's very good trends. And the problem is that, again, they've committed to ending their new investment. It could be done much sooner and much more rapidly. And the work that they're doing is very appreciated. But we have so many opportunities out there to avoid new investment in oil and gas. We know that we need this transition and we can do it. So the problem is that it's simply not fast enough. And there is this UN-led net zero banking alliance that all of these big banks have signed up to. Does this suggest that they're not quite taking their obligations under that seriously enough? Well, it definitely suggests that they're in a very old mindset. They are absolutely not aware of the major, major concerns which we have in continuing to expand oil and gas usage, and also all the alternatives which are out there. They are really digging themselves into a deep hole because we know that oil and gas are so heavily subsidized by governments. We know that society is pushing to end those subsidies and to use the energy systems which we know are, are available now, which are not oil and gas. So the banks have the power, the banks have the impetus and the money. All they need is the knowledge and the will to say, you know what, we can do this quickly. We can take on board the criticisms and add to what they're doing in order to go much faster and much more substantively. You mentioned governments, and there's also obviously the companies that are receiving this money from the banks. Shouldn't we really be focusing on them rather than the banks? It's all of us, and we need to focus on everyone. So the banks are making the decision to invest. That means that they should be part of the discussion. 
Governments are making the decision to subsidize. They have to be part of the discussion, but it's also the companies. The fossil fuel companies are actively seeking investment. They're taking it, and rather than going into demand reduction and much more sustainable supplies, they're also saying, look, we can go for oil and gas. So this is about all of us, including our individual use and where we get our own energy from. We're all part of this planet. We're all part of society. So let's come together and do what we know we can do, which is much cheaper, much more effective, and much better for our health and for the planet's health. Okay, Ilan Kelman from the Institute of Risk and Disaster Reduction at University College London. Thank you very much for joining us. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com, as well as on YouTube at their channel called DW News. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at the website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which will complete its 25th year of production in April, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.